to you and to know that you you hear us sing, you hear our prayers, and you respond because you're a gracious and loving God. So Lord, as we now turn to your word, my prayer and my request for us now is that you'd be honored and that you'd help us to focus and to see what it is that you want us to see in these three verses that we examine in Habakkuk chapter 2. Ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and find your seat as the oldest group of freshwater kids is going to make their way out of the room. And as you're finding your seat, you can take your copy of God's Word and turn in it to Habakkuk chapter 2 as we address the danger of influence. The danger of influence. That's going to be page 786 or maybe 787 by now in a pew Bible if you've got one of those close to you. Also, if you don't have a sermon outline with you this morning and you want one because you're like me and you like to follow along by taking notes, raise your hand and the amazing and and, uh, handsome Andy is going to run by and get you a sermon outline so that you can fill in the blanks and feel like you accomplished something today. It's, uh, we normally have that in the worship guide, but this week it was so big that we couldn't. I had to put it on a half sheet, so um, there you go. We're going to have plenty of work to do this morning. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. I'm Joshua. I'm the lead pastor here at Freshwater. Our mission as a church is to help people become totally committed followers of Jesus Christ. So I say every week that if you are new here and I haven't met you yet, I would love to meet you before you leave for the day, and that is a genuine... Um, commitment by me. I'd love to, to get to uh, meet you and, and hang out with you a little bit and say hi. I always stand at the back door after the service. May 13th, 1931, a baby was born. And I'm sure there were lots of babies born, but this baby was significant in that he was healthy. He was cute like all babies are. And I doubt that the parents anticipated that this, what this child would grow up to do. He had a rather ordinary and a rather religious upbringing Um, at least by many accounts. He was a normal kid for the most part, except some people said he was a a little strange and that he was obsessed with death and that he would gather the dead animals that he found in his yard on his family farm and he would perform funerals for these animals. So that kind of is a little strange, many people would say. But I bet most individuals were proud when he was ordained as a pastor in the Disciples of Christ Church. And he later established what was known as the People's Temple, which started in Indiana and then eventually made its way to California and settled for most of its life in San Francisco. And the People's Temple was a church, but really it was a communist organization led by this man named Jim Jones. And the organization was not liked by most Americans that actually knew what it was. And as more and more pressure was placed on them, Jim Jones eventually led the People's Temple with its over 900 members to relocate to a farm, kind of a commune that was named Jonestown in Guyana, a country along the northern coast of South America. But as they fled the United States, the accusations of abuse and incest and civil rights violations and rape kept popping up within the People's Temple until in 1978, Jim Jones used his influence and his power over the people there in Jonestown to convince them to commit suicide by drinking a uh, a generic form of Kool-Aid mixed with cyanide. And over 900 people died as a result of that. By the way, over 300 of them were children. And something that I thought was incredibly significant or or at least interesting is that before September 11th, that was the single greatest loss of American civilian life in a deliberate act that this country had ever seen. And events like that get my attention for a couple different reasons. The primary one being that I just think to myself, how could one person have so much power 
and have so much influence that they are able to convince another group of people not only to kill themselves, but to kill their children. You know, like what level of brainwashing has to exist when you can talk 900 people into doing that? Well, when we think about the power that we have over others, but also that others have over us to influence our behavior, that's an issue that the Bible is not silent on. And that's actually an issue that the Bible talks, us, talks about and it warns us about. That if we're not careful, other people who are not following God and who are not seeking him are going to use their power and their influence to pull us away from the gospel and ultimately to do everything that they can to pull us away from Jesus Christ. And actually the text that we're looking at this morning is dealing with exactly that. It's the danger of influence. Now here's kind of the context of the scripture that we're looking at this morning. We're in this series that we've been in pretty much since the beginning of February where we're working our way through the book of Habakkuk. We've called this series, The Righteous Shall Live by Faith. That's taken right out of chapter 2, verse 4. And just to review, Habakkuk is a prophet whom God is using in a mighty way. He's prophesying about 600 years before Jesus would be born. And he's prophesying to the people in the nation of Judah. King Josiah, you'll remember, was a great king that God had used to bring about some incredibly significant spiritual reforms in the country. But when he dies, the nation begins to crumble, doesn't it? Uh, Much of the reform that he's brought about is reversed. Uh, Holiness becomes absent. Sin is rampant. And Habakkuk is standing up before God. and He's asking God, God, how long is it going to be before you correct this problem? How long is it going to be before you make these people obey you? So God answers and God says, Habakkuk, I'm actually raising up an enemy nation known as the Babylonians or the Chaldeans and I'm very soon going to use them to march through Judah and to punish the people for their disobedience. God responds, you'll remember, uh, excuse me, Habakkuk responds, you'll remember, and Habakkuk says, God, how can you do that? They're more wicked than we are. At which God responds back and God says, Habakkuk, I can do what I want because I am God and you are not. But also in that response that God gives, God begins to mock the Babylonians, the exact people that he's going to use to punish the people of Judah. So we've seen God warn them about three different things so far. First, in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 2, God warned us about the danger of greed. Then two weeks ago, in verses 9 through 11, God warned us about the danger of comfort and the danger of, of wanting an overly comfortable and easy life. Then last week, God, uh, in verses 12 through 14, God warned us about the danger of misguided effort and how we have a choice to make. Are we going to use our energy and our ambition to the glory of God or are we going to use it to pursue our own glory? Next week, we're going to come back and we're going to look at verses 18 through 20 and we're going to see the danger of stuff and the danger of materialism. But this week, we examine the danger of influence. The danger of influence. And this is, and what is happening is that as God examines these pagan Babylonians, One of his condemnations over them is that they would use their brute power to hurt and destroy. But another part of his condemnation of them is that they would use their intellectual power to coax people into sin. And what you and I are going to have to deal with and answer as we look at this text is are we the ones that are allowing others to influence us in such a way that we're being drawn away from God or On the flip side of that are maybe we the ones who are influencing others. And unfortunately, because of our lack of holiness, the enemy is using our lives to draw them away from God. Maybe we're not living as holy a life as we would like to. Is our sin working in such a way that we're actually helping to make them less like Christ? 
Maybe influencing them in such a way that they're looking more like the world and less like Jesus. These are the questions that we have to answer this morning as we look at the Scripture. So this morning, here's how we're going to break apart the text. First, we'll see what God condemns in the lives of the Babylonians. And then we're going to see how God warns us not to follow their example. So first, here's what God condemns. This is going to be your first blank. God condemns using your power and influence to bully people into sin. God condemns using your power and your influence to bully people into sin. Where do we see that? Well, let's pick up in verse 15. Let's read the verse in its entirety. It says, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Stop right there. So remember how this goes. Each one of these new sections we've seen so far, as we've been working through chapter 2, is introduced by woe to him. And then it describes that particular woe. And remember the context. God is condemning the Babylonians. Some say these condemnations, especially this one, are directed specifically toward the king of the Babylonian empire and his court. Other people say it's directed toward the people as a whole. But no matter whether it's directed toward the king or whether it's a general statement about the way that the country's society operated, it's clear that certain people in powerful positions were using their power and their notoriety to influence or to coax others into doing horrible things. Now, what are the horrible things that God is condemning? Well, specifically in our text, we're talking about the sins of, under letter A, drunkenness, and under letter B, sexual immorality. Drunkenness and sexual immorality. You see both of those right there in verse 15, the first half of the verse. The idea is that the Babylonian king would use his force and his power to manipulate people and basically to demand that people would drink until They were drunk. It says, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk. So drunkenness. Then at the end of the verse, it says, he says why he would do this. It says, in order to gaze at their nakedness. Now that phrase, gaze at their nakedness, is kind of a peculiar phrase. It's used in different places in the Old Testament. Seems to mean different things depending on the context. Some people say that it just simply means shaming someone. Some people say it means lusting after someone that is unclothed. Other people say it's referring specifically to some type of a sexual act, possibly even homosexuality. But it's probably that the Babylonian king is demanding that people get drunk so that they'll, he'll sleep with them, so that they will sleep with him. Like it's some type of, it's some form of using alcohol to manipulate people into doing things sexually that they wouldn't normally do. But I feel like we need to discuss these two particular sins that are brought up and, and to bring some clarity to these issues of drunkenness and sexual immorality since both of these are so incredibly prevalent in our society today. And here's one of the rabbits that we just got to chase today. I really feel like we got to chase this rabbit and take it out. Before we address drunkenness and sexual, and, and sexual immorality, let's first describe what exactly sin is. Let's first talk about that. What is sin? Like really if we were to define it. Well, we know that sin is anything that keeps us away from God, right? Anything that separates us from God. So sin can look different. It can be a little bit different. But the point is that it's keeping us from having fellowship with God. That, that, that's what sin is. But really, how do you recognize it? How do you know what is sinful and what isn't? I mean, enticing a person to drunkenness or sexual immorality is sinful only if the thing that you're enticing them to do is indeed sin. 
I mean, it wouldn't be a sin for me to coax you into reading your Bible, would it? That wouldn't be a sin. It wouldn't be a sin for me to, you know, encourage you or possibly even demand you to pray. That's not a sin. So it wouldn't be sinful to to do those things. So what do we say about what exactly sin is? Well, understand that as we discuss both of these, there's a big difference between something being inherently sinful versus something being potentially sinful. You see that? There's a huge difference in those two things. And that some things are inherently, universally sinful. So, for example, stealing is sinful. Murder is sinful. Adultery is sinful. Using the Lord's name in vain is sinful. Those things that are are always unequivocally sinful. There's no situation where God wants you to cheat on your spouse. That situation does not exist. It's inherently sinful. But a whole lot of other things are potentially sinful. And that they're not necessarily sinful, but they can indeed become sinful. Which, by the way, is basically everything. Which really makes it easy to gauge. Understand that even good things can become sinful if they're done for the wrong reasons. So, for example, exercising and taking care of your body, which I know very little about, is a good thing. But it's not a good thing if you're doing it for vanity. It's not a good thing if you're doing it because you want other people to lust after you. It would be taking something that is good and you're making it sinful. Reading your Bible is a good thing. But it's a bad thing if you read your Bible so that you can hang that over the head of other people and kind of throw in their face how how much you know Scripture. Sharing your faith is a good thing. But sharing your faith just so that you can gain another notch on your belt... That's not a good thing, is it? That's allowing something that is good to become sinful. And most of us would likely agree on the the things that are inherently sinful. Most of us would agree that stealing and murdering and adultery and using the Lord's name in vain, that those are inherently wrong. Those have no place in the lives of Christians whatsoever. But it's those things that aren't inherently sinful, but that are potentially sinful. Those are the things that become really divisive for Christians. I mean, denominations have been formed because of disagreements about the things that are potentially sinful. For example, tattoos. There's one. Some Christians, unfortunately, I think, and with good intentions, although I don't agree with them, have concluded that tattoos are inherently sinful. When I think they're potentially sinful... I don't think they're inherently sinful. Like if you're tatted up because you worship your body or if you're tatted up because, you know, with full of vulgar sayings or whatever it might be because you're trying to take people away from God, I think that's an example of it becoming sin. But I don't think it's inherently sinful. I personally think you can get a tattoo to the glory of God. That's my personal opinion. You don't have to agree with that. You can disagree with me. That's okay. Tobacco use, I think, is an example of something that is potentially sinful and that if it masters you, and it controls you, then it becomes sin to you. And that's a good reason to avoid it. Some people claim that sugar, for the same reasons, is not sinful, but it becomes sinful for you when you're addicted to it, when you have to have your morning soda. Because if you don't, you're going to have a headache. Some people say the same thing about coffee and caffeine. When they master us and we have to have them, they leap from not sinful to sinful, to controlling us. Food. Eating is not sinful. Eating is actually, you know, it's, it, it has to happen. It's necessary. But it may very well be sin for us to go to Golden Crowl and eat 50,000 calories at one meal, you know. That's probably not God's purpose 
for the life of Joshua Hartley. It's probably not what God wants for me. Well, going back to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 15, both of these things that God is telling Habakkuk about, specifically drunkenness, referring to alcohol, and sexual immorality, of course, referring to sex, both of them are things that I think are potentially sinful, but they're not inherently sinful. What do I mean by that? Well, drunkenness. Here's what the Bible doesn't have. You're not ever going to find anywhere in the Bible that outrightly condemns alcohol use. That that verse just isn't in there. It's not there. Now, we could say that it might not be wise to drink. It's certainly a sin for you to consume alcohol around a Christian who has self-control issues with alcohol. And if you're a minor... By the way, it's a, it's, it's a sin for any of us to break the law. We're supposed to obey the law. So if you're a minor, it's absolutely a sin for you to, to drink alcohol. I mean, we get all of that. But the Bible doesn't, doesn't have any direct statements that condemn alcohol use. But you know what the Bible does do? Time and time and time again, it condemns drunkenness. Like a thousand times. It's all over the place. God does not want your mind to be in a place where you're unable to control yourself. God doesn't want you to wake up and sober up and then regret something you did the night before or something you said, right? He wants you to be filled with the Holy Spirit rather than spirits, like liquor store spirits, right? Sexual immorality, the other one that he mentions. On the other hand, it's taking something that is inherently good, which is sex, and you're distorting it and you're using it in a way that is not glorifying to God. And that in principle includes a whole bunch of different things. That not only includes the things that get the most attention in Christian circles like homosexuality and adultery, but it includes things like pornography. It includes looking at another person lusting after them. It includes denying sex to your spouse. It includes mommy porn like Fifty Shades of Grey. It includes sex outside of marriage. It includes bestiality. It includes sexting someone you're not married to. It includes a lot of things, but all of them are taking something that is good, namely sex, that God created and gave to mankind for both pleasure and procreation, and you're distorting God's design. That's what he's going after. And I think that's what the point is that God is making about the Babylonians. They were good at taking things that aren't necessarily horrible. They're not necessarily sinful at all. And they're good at encouraging you to engage in such a way. Take that thing to a level in which it becomes sin and it masters you. It distorts God's original design. Now, here's the question. What does this look like in real life? Now, now that we've got all of that out of the way, I, I want you to realize Three things before we move on. Three things. Here they are, and I'll go through them fairly quickly. First, under letter A, realize that it really is possible for you, for us, to cause another person to sin. Do you realize that? It really is possible for you to cause another person to sin. Now, before we get all up in arms about that and we say, oh, no, preacher, I don't cause anybody to sin. I've never done anything like that. There are a couple of things I want to lay out on the table. First, individuals are responsible for their own sin. Understand that. Like, you are responsible for your own sin. You don't get, a, you don't get, to, you don't get the scapegoat. You don't get to do the cop out and say, well, I got it from my parents. I got it from this friend, whatever. That's not how the Bible works at all. Individuals are responsible for their own sin. But second, your life has a direct impact on the people around you. I mean, a direct impact. Otherwise, why would Jesus say in Luke 17 and Matthew 18 that it would be better for an individual to be drowned in a river with a millstone tied around their neck than for them to cause a child to sin? Why would Jesus say that? 
In Ephesians 6, 4, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, implying that we as parents, and especially we as fathers, can, in our discipline, be maybe too harsh. We can cause our children to become sinfully angry with us. We can essentially provoke them. We can kind of, because of our influence over them, the power that God has invested in us over their lives, we can cause them to sin. There are other examples in the Bible than just those two, but the point is that it absolutely is possible for us to be so interconnected with people around us and have influence around them, our sphere of influence, that we can actually cause them to sin. Isn't that horrible? Second, under letter B, realize that none of us are allowed to be ignorant concerning the struggles of those around us. None of us are allowed to be ignorant concerning the struggles of those around us. This means that we need to have a keen eye on the struggles, the sin, the the, the temptations that the people around us are enduring. We want to be watching out for that so that we don't aid in their rebellion. And third, under letter C, realize that none of us are allowed to care about ourselves more than we care about the people around us. We need to care about others more than we care about ourselves. So we have to realize God condemns the life that is lived in such a way that it has no regard for others and no regard for personal temptations of others. No regard for the influence that we might have over them. We have to be forever conscious that the life that we choose to live, we can either be encouraging a person in holiness or we can be dragging them away from the throne of God. I hope I don't have to emphasize which one we want to be in. But next in the text, as we look at verses 16 and 17, God warns us about what's going to happen to the Babylonians. And we could even say to us if we refuse to heed the warning that God made in verse 15. And that God warns us that the abuse of your influence will cry out against you. That's number two. God warns us that the abuse of your influence is going to cry out against you. Where do we see that? Well, look with me now at verses 16 and 17. It says, You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. And as the as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Now, this is kind of a complex section of just a couple of verses, but there's actually so much in these two verses, there's no way we're going to be able to, to cover it all. But the point is that, remember verse 15, the Babylonian king was using his influence over people to coax them into sin, right? To get them drunk so that he could sleep with them or have them do whatever it is that he wanted them to do. But we should not think that living a life like that and refusing to heed God's warning is going to be free from punishment. Don't assume that that's the way that it works. We should never assume that. Actually, that's the point of verses 16 and 17. Your sin is crying out against you. Isn't that an interesting picture? You take advantage of others. It's crying out against you. You destroy the countryside because of your ambition, Babylonians, to conquer nations. That's what he's talking about when he mentions Lebanon. Guess what? That land is crying out against you. That land that you destroyed, it's convicting you. As a matter of fact, the text is showing us that we will have, under letter A, shame rather than glory. Under letter B, exposure rather than enjoyment. Under letter C, suffering rather than pleasure. And under letter D, violence rather than peace. So shame, exposure, suffering, 
and violence. And you can, ima- you can examine um, all of those through that scripture um, later today as you're sitting at home hanging out. But the idea is this. We think that by getting other people to sin with us, we think that that's going to provide joy or satisfaction. We think, man, if we can just coax them into living the same life that we are living when we're in rebellion against God, we think it's going to dull the knife of conviction. But in reality, we are bringing more pain and more suffering into our lives. Pain and suffering that we may not have had originally. I mean, think about it this way. Everybody's heard the phrase, misery loves company, right? We've probably all heard that. Do you know that phrase is it's estimated to be over 2,400 years old? That's 400 years before Jesus. There was a Greek playwright. I can't, I can't pronounce the dude's name, but he had a play where he actually mentioned a phrase that's very similar to that one. Who knows where he got it before that? You know, who knows where he got it before him? But the point of that phrase is that some people, it just seems like if their life is miserable, they want everybody around them to be miserable as well. You know people like this, don't you? I think we all know people like this. It's incredibly depressing. But they just can't stand the idea of you having joy and you having peace and you having contentment in your life without them. So they may speak these little half-truths into your life. They may speak words of doubt trying to get you to call into question what you believe. Maybe even what you think about God. The constant assault by them on your life, even though you recognize it and even though you kind of maybe even know that it's coming and you're able to anticipate it, it's kind of, it just wears on you over time. And just like a wave that keeps crashing against a rock, it eventually just erodes your faith and your joy and the satisfaction that you found in Christ. Now, why do people do that? Do you ever ask yourself that? I've met people like that. Why, why is that your life? Like, why do you insist on pulling people into rebellion? Why do you insist on living like that? Well, think about this. For you, Christian, your joy and your satisfaction and your peace and your faithfulness act to convict the life and the heart of people who don't have what you have. Like, it's just the way that it is. Some people see your life and they will hear the gospel as you share it with them and they will respond in joy and thanksgiving and they will run to the cross of Christ and some people the gospel just fosters a deeper hatred for you. It's just the way that it is. It's not that you've necessarily done something wrong. It's just who you are. You know, the Bible says that Scripture is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Scripture is something that God uses to divide people, like to cut their heart, to take them out. People don't want to hear it. They've already got their mind made up as to what God looks like. They know what they want God to be like. They've already got their decision made, many of them. And God needs to be like that. And Scripture is the guy who takes his finger and puts it in your chest and says, you are wrong. You need to change the way you think about God. You need to change the way that you think about others. Well, you Christian, you have the same Holy Spirit that gave us the word of God living inside of you. So that for the unbeliever, your life is a walking, talking conviction for them. That's what you are. And rather than them deal with their sin and wrestle through their conviction, the easier choice for them is often just to try to wrestle you to their side. You know, to convince you that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, that it's easier to live a life in rebellion to God than it is to submit to Christ. They wouldn't feel God's finger pounding them in the chest anymore if you would not live your life like salt and light, like God commands you to. So they work to change you. They work to move you. They work to coax you onto their side. And you've got to be strong enough and you've got to be grounded enough to see the futility in their efforts 
that Jesus really is better. He's so much more fulfilling. He's so much more satisfying than anything that the world could ever offer you. Now, William Wilberforce is a name that I've mentioned before, and I'll tell you a little bit about him, and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up. We really have Wilberforce as one of the primary people to thank for the abolition of legalized slavery. He was a late 18th century, early 19th century Englishman who in 1785, he became an evangelical Christian, and he really led the parliamentary campaign against the British slave trade for 20 years until the passage of the Slave Trade Act of 1807. Really an absolutely fascinating guy. And England led the way. And then, praise God, the United States eventually followed suit. But I want to tell you about how he became a Christian. He was originally incredibly skeptical of Christianity, much like maybe some of us are. But in 1874, he decided to take a vacation to the French and Italian Riviera. And and to travel there, it meant a 1,200-mile trek winding through Europe, through the Alps, in the back of a stagecoach. So he, of course, didn't want to do that. He had um, wanted somebody to go with him. He had a couple friends that he had invited, but they couldn't attend. He didn't want to go by himself because that long of a trip in the back of a carriage by yourself was enough to make an individual go insane. And by God's providence, he came in contact with an old childhood friend named Isaac Milner. And what you need to know about Isaac Milner are two things. First, he was said to be a humongous man. Some people said that Isaac was the biggest man that they'd ever seen in all of England. He was a big dude, which must have been comical to see them standing next to each other because William Wilberforce was all of five foot three inches tall and he was skinny as a rail. It said that one time he got sick and he got down to 76 pounds. This is an adult male. So this guy was really, really skinny. But also Milner was a genius and that he occupied a professorship at Cambridge that had once been held by Isaac Newton and has more recently been held by Stephen Hawking, if you know who that is. So it's no overstatement to say that whoever was holding that professorship was one of the smartest people on the planet. And at that time, it was Isaac Milner, this man that was about to make this 1,200-mile trek with William Wilberforce. Well, they talked about God. They talked about faith creation, repentance, justification, the fall, redemption. And they talked about Jesus and forgiveness. And Wilberforce was incredibly impressed with the intelligence of Milner regarding theology. He had always assumed that in order to be a Christian, you kind of had to sacrifice your intelligence like only Christians, only Christians were, all Christians were dumb and stupid. And he realized when he talked to Milner that no, you don't have to be an idiot to be a Christian. You can actually be incredibly intelligent and still follow Christ. Believe in God. Believe in the resurrection. And by the end of the trip, I want to read to you what had happened by the end of that 1,200 mile trip. This is how one biographer described it. He said, Wilberforce found to his significant distress that he had come to believe with his whole mind that what he had been sure was false was in fact true. The God of the Bible existed. Jesus existed in history and was the promised Messiah. And the scriptures were not silly old myths, but truth itself. For someone of his social standing and prestige, he was in a curious and uncomfortable position. What to do about it? Well, look, I want you to remember that every William Wilberforce and every other person like him that has ever existed, every Billy Graham, every Beth Moore, every David Platt, every Francis Chan, they all had someone before them that when given the gospel 
decided that rather than being an individual that allows the world to throw its influence on you and make you look and act and talk like them, you are going to be the individual that God used the gospel to influence the world with. And that's what I want for every single one of us. That's what I want for me, for my children, for my wife. I want us to be individuals who, as the world is constantly heaping up things on top of us, trying to pull us away from God, pull us away from the gospel, we would be the individuals that respond in grace and love and work to influence the world for the good of God. Now, before we can do that, we need to be people who have come to the same conclusion about sin and the same conclusion about God, about Jesus, about the resurrection that William Wilberforce came to on that trip on vacation in France. And that's my invitation to every single one of us every Sunday morning. We believe that sin has, just like I said earlier, it has separated us from God, hasn't it? That as God looks down at us and without Jesus, he sees no good reason to save us. There's nothing that we have to offer him. We can't buy our salvation. We can't purchase it with good works. We can't work our way out of the debt that we have to him. So God has done what? He has sent his perfect and only son to live and to die and to rise from the grave. So that if you, every, any of you, every single one of you will repent and believe, you can be reconciled to God. Jesus took your place on the cross. He paid for your penalty of sin so that when you repent and believe, when you follow him, guess what God does? God can now look down at you as justified in his eyes, as being completely forgiven. He no longer sees your past sin. He no longer sees those universal sins that you've taken part of, even those personal sins that you've taken part of. He no longer sees you as an adulterer, a fornicator, a thief. He no longer sees you as one who blasphemes God. He sees you as having the perfection and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is the blessing of what it means to follow Christ. And this is the invitation for every single one of you, all of you who haven't yet done that. This is my call for you to do that, to do that right now. Now, there are three ways that you can respond if that strikes a chord in your heart. The first way is with your worship guide. On the inside of your worship guide, there's what we call a connect card. You can grab that connect card, hit that bubble at the top that says, I've chosen to follow Jesus. Fill out that contact information. You can drop that in the offer, in the giving baskets when they come by later, and we will contact you very soon about that. The second way is on your way out. I stand at the back door. You can reach out and grab my hand and say, Josh, I've chosen to follow Jesus. I want to hear more about what this looks like, and I'd be happy to talk with you about that. And the third way is actually during our next song. As we, in just a second, stand and sing together, we are... Um going to sing, but we're going to respond in a couple different ways. And one of those ways is that I stand at the connect table in the foyer. So if you want to come back and I can pray for you about something, if you want to hear more about what it looks like to follow Jesus, if you know that you need to be baptized, you want to follow and believers baptism, just come back and talk to me. Just step out in that aisle and walk back and talk to me during that last song. And this is also the time in the service when we give you an opportunity to worship the Lord through giving. Here at Freshwater, there are four ways that you can give. The first being the giving baskets, which are going to come by at the beginning of this last song that we sing. The second way is in the foyer at the giving box where you can drop your gift, your offering in. The third way is at the giving kiosk where you can give by debit card. And the fourth way being online at freshwaterjc.com. Remember that we don't give because you know, you have to give to get to heaven. We give as a response because of everything that God has done for us. And I'll just bring you up to date on something that we decided this week that, of course, increases the financial burden of the church. But many of you know that we're in a process of planning with an architect right now to build a building, and we hope to be in that building possibly by the end of the year. But in the meantime, the church is continuing to grow, and as a result of it continuing to grow, we've got more kids back there than exist in most middle schools. 
Just going to tell you. So we've prayed about what to do on that. Should we just push it off and try to wait until that next building? We've actually decided we're going to rent two more classrooms back there um, so that we have room to disciple our children, teach our children what it looks like to follow Christ. So that's a good thing when we have to add classrooms. And that's happened several times in the history of Freshwater. But just know that adds an increased rent payment every month as we await our new building and look forward to that. But it's something that we just felt like was a great investment. So you can know that's where part of your um, tithes and offerings are going. I want to pray for us and after I pray, we're going to stand, we're going to sing, and we're going to give to the Lord. Heavenly Father and Lord, I thank you, God, for all that you are and all that you do. And I'm grateful, Lord, that we get to be your people, that we get to follow you, that we get to set our eyes on you. I'm thankful, Lord, that you are better than anything that the world has to offer, that when we have people in our life that are set on influencing us and pulling us away from the gospel and turning us away from you. I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit lives in us to urge in us and to work in us and just to to, to help ground us in the faith. So Lord, thank you for that. And then I also pray, Lord, that we would not allow our lives to be a hindrance to those around us, Lord, That, that, that our life would be nothing more, nothing less than a proclamation of your goodness, how great you are, that we don't pursue the same things that the world pursues, that we don't find satisfaction in temporal things, but that we find satisfaction in the fact that we get to be with you for all of eternity. So Lord, thank you for that. Now Lord, as we stand and we sing as your people, I pray that you'd be glorified in this. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.